So my wife and I, we do love to travel. Uh, one of my favorite places, a place that I've been to a couple times, is Cape Town, South Africa. And Cape Town is a gorgeous, you can clap, Cape Town is beautiful. Somebody just went, they wanted to let everybody know they went to Cape Town. No, I'm kidding. Um, I've been to Cape Town a couple times and it's a beautiful, beautiful city. And what we like to do is we like to eat our way through a city. So it feels like to me a travesty if I go to a city and I don't get like the best food that that city wants, that, that city can offer. And so we get to Cape Town and we go on TripAdvisor, we scour the blogs, we look all over to find out what are the best restaurants in Cape Town. And coincidentally, we found that this one restaurant was one that was the number one restaurant in Cape Town and it was also actually very affordable. This one, though, did not have an oceanfront view. It didn't have a view overlooking Table Mountain and all of the beautiful sights that Cape Town has to offer. This one was in the Lenga Township, about 15, 20 minutes away from city center. Now, I grew up in the suburbs, so we first got out the car, and I was like, this is not what I expected uh, this number one restaurant scene to be about. I was expecting it to be this beautiful vista and this layout, and they really just drove us into the middle of a township, and you really couldn't tell what even existed there. At first, I was skeptical, so I walked in, and it was one woman named Mama Namande, and she was operating this restaurant out of her home. We sat down, and everybody ate family style. About 10 minutes into the meal, I realized why this was the number one restaurant in Cape Town. The food was absolutely incredible. But more than the food being incredible, the experience was just beautiful and authentic. She welcomed you into her home, and then you felt like you were at home. It felt like something that everybody should experience, a place where you're welcomed and fed delicious food. Now, as most Westerners do, um, we always think about optimizing things. And at the end of the night, Mama Namande uh, asked everybody, do we have any questions? And one woman raised her hand, and she said, Mama Namande, what's your five-year plan? Her restaurant was so successful that, of course, she should be branding it to do more, open new sites. And Mama Namande looked at her and she said, in five years, I want to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now, welcoming people into my home and cooking them delicious food. When she was talking, it hit me that the reason she had the number one restaurant in all of Cape Town was because you cannot compete with the real thing. There's something beautiful about Simple authenticity. Now, when I read through the pages of Scripture, one thing you'll see is that the reason Jesus was so compelling was that Jesus, before, unlike anybody before or since, possessed a genuineness, an authenticity that was just beautiful to, to see. His connection to God the Father, his love for people the least and the last, was something never before or since seen in history. There's a theologian by the name of John Gerstner. He describes Jesus like this. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see virtues combined that never anywhere else are combined. We see tenderness without weakness, strength without a milligram of harshness, humility without uncertainty. You see unbending convictions and yet complete and utter approachability. You see power without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity without any rigidity. Never unthinking, never a false word, never 
I missed that. This past month, I've been thinking about what is my hope for Renaissance, and my hope for Renaissance is simply that we are the real thing. I love the graphics. I love when I look through the pictures over the years and I see how our lighting package has upgraded. We don't have beige curtains like we used to. Our music is amazing. This choir is incredible. Our staff is so gifted at all the things they do, and I love that, and I praise God for that. More than a good production, my hope for you as a community, my hope for me as a part of this community is that Renaissance would be the real thing. You know, Jesus had some really, really harsh words and his strongest criticism against communities of faith who claimed to possess a connection to God the Father and yet did not possess these real qualities of what it means to be godly. Jesus oftentimes would come into conflict with this group of people called the Pharisees. This group of Pharisees, they loved the appearance of godliness, but they resisted doing the things that would actually make them godly. They loved the compliments and the praise of other people about how good they were. They loved their private acts of devotion, but in all of their activity, they didn't actually love people. Now, this outraged Jesus, and it really should serve as a warning to anyone that would bear his name, that to follow him means loving God and loving other people. Now, I was reading through this parable this past week of the Good Samaritan, and it's a story of Jesus indicting religious folk who had all the right doctrines. They knew all the statements of faith. They could recite everything that needed to be said, and yet they didn't actually love people. They treated people as a commodity. And so Jesus tells this parable of these two religious people who see someone who has been beaten and laid for dead, left for dead on the side of the road. Now, every listener of the story would have expected that the heroes of the story to be these religious people, but yet they stepped over this man and went on their merry way. And it was an outsider, this good Samaritan, which inconvenienced himself, which sacrificed himself. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, go and to do likewise. I was listening to a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell this past week as he talked about gun violence in America, and Malcolm Gladwell uh, distilled the Good Samaritan down to a beautiful description of one angle of what sin is. And here's what he says about the concept of sin, another concept of sin. Sin is indifference. Sin is the failure to bother to care. That you can see someone who is in need and you're just indifferent. You don't care if they're doing well or not. As long as you're good, as long as you, as long as you and yours got yours, as long as you know the right doctrines, sin, according to Jesus, as another definition of it, is in indifference. Uh, there's a theologian, uh, a man by the name of Carl Ellis. And Carl Ellis introduced uh, really recently to a mainline theology this concept of two-sided theology. So Gen Zers and younger Generation Alpha, stick with me for a little bit because it's going to get a little rocky. Back in the day, we used to have tapes, cassettes. <laughs> You would put your tape in the radio, and when you heard the horns of Funk Flex, you would get up, run to the, to the uh, stereo to hit record to capture what was going on. And when you would uh, buy a tape, like you would hear all of these bangers, like Illmatic, you had this whole side A of the tape, and then the tape would just stop. And then if you wanted to keep on listening to the heat, you had to turn the tape around, put it back in the cassette player, and hit play again. 
Now, each tape had side A and side B. Now, what Carl Ellis introduced to everybody was saying, there is a side A to theology, which is how you should think about God. What should you believe about God? Who is God? What is the gospel? What is the truth that you should hold to? Now, side A theology is immensely important. It is an incredible amount of damage that has been done to people, to me, to all of us, when we believe the wrong things. Jesus came to clarify what it means to follow him, to be in relationship with God the Father. That stuff is immensely important. That being said, there's also a side B. And scripture writers over and over again have invited us to flip the tape and to hit play. Side B is the ethics of theology. How should you live? So if the gospel message is true, what should that do in your life? How should you live that out? How should you treat people based on the truth that you know? And so Paul does this in the book of Galatians. Paul spends the first number of chapters in the book of Galatians going through side A theology, explaining to them what the gospel is. The gospel is not a message of good advice, of more things for you to do to make yourself right with God. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, that God saw us, we were lost in our sin. God came down in the person of Jesus, went to the cross for our sin, and made us right with God the Father. And that should change you. When I was in um, about fourth or fifth grade, uh, we took a class trip to Philly to uh, eat cheesesteaks and see the Liberty Bell. And um, we were on the class trip, and one of my friends and I had the genius idea that we were going to get our own little tour of Philly. We were going to go away from the crowd for a couple of blocks. And this is before air tags and phones and all that other stuff. And I have a terrible sense of direction, so within about 30 seconds, we were lost. And to be lost as a nine-year-old in a city you've never been to before is like a really terrible feeling. At first, it was kind of funny that we were doing our own thing, and then very quickly, dread set in that I didn't know if I was ever going to see my class ever again. For about 10 minutes, we spent the most nerve-wracking 10 minutes of my young life to that point, and then finally, I saw my principal come around the corner. I have never been as happy in my life to see that man. <laughs> I ran to that white man's arms like I was, <laughs> like I was Arnold, and he was Mr. Drummond from uh, Different Strokes. I leapt in his arms, I hugged him like he was my stepfather. Because I had been lost, and now I was found. And what was emanating from my heart was deep appreciation and gratitude, because I knew, left to myself, I would have just stayed lost. The message of the gospel is that you have been lost. And the only way back is not you and your friends. He don't know where he's going either. The only way back is someone coming to get you. That's the story of the gospel, that God came and he got you. So Paul spends the first five chapters of Galatians talking about, listen, yo, God got you. Y'all trying to argue about adding more things to your religion? Listen, just understand that Jesus came down and he got you, and it's not about adding more things to the list. It's about what he has done on the cross, motivating us to live a life of devotion and adoration and holiness and obedience to him. Now, Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, flips the tape around, and he says, now, that truth, which is the truth, should motivate you to live a different life. What should the gospel do in our lives? In chapter 6, Paul is advising these Galatian Christians, in light of the gospel of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are now free to help other people. 
In light of the gospel, you are now free to actually love other people. Let me read the scripture. Galatians 6, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves, so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his or her own work, and then they can take pride in themselves alone and not compare themselves with someone else. For each person will have to carry his or her, or her own load. So we're going to be primarily in verse 2 today, which says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. My hope for Renaissance is that we become an embodiment of that, that we become people who are saturated, motivated by the gospel, and we are free to love other people, that this scripture will be on full display in our community. So this word burden in verse 2 is, it's a heavy weight or stone, and it's uh, this word, uh, baros in the Greek, it means a heavy weight or a stone that someone is required to carry for a long distance. So I want you to think about in your own life, what are some of the stones that in the rocks and the, the heavy things that you've had to carry, not just for a week, not just for a semester, where one professor, you don't like their teaching, but something that you've had to carry for a long time. What Paul is basically saying is this. He is saying, in life, and scripture writers, Jesus says this, in life, you will have trials and tribulations. And one of the marks of the Christian community is that we will be people who help to carry other people's um, burdens. So a couple of implications from, um, from this text that I want us to be thinking about. Number one is the reality of burdens. Um, all Christians, all people have burdens. Yours differ in size and shape than mine do. But all of us have these things in our lives that are just heavy, and we have to carry them. But Scripture gives us an encouragement that we should not have to carry these things by ourselves. You know, as I think about one of the best and most challenging aspects of my job is that I get a front row seat to listen to people's stories, and I have quite literally seen people do 180s. I have seen God bless people in tremendous ways. I have seen eyes just open. I've seen God open up doors. I've clapped and been in, um, uh, you know, with families who have been dealing with infertility for years and, and now we're meeting their baby. I mean, it, we've seen God do so many amazing things. People who um, were Giants fans and now they know the Jets are better. <laughs> the, the myriad of miracles that God has done in so many people's lives. <laughs> but I've also had to experience a, a front row seat and um, alongside our staff and our leaders and our pastors, uh, the challenges, the, the burdens, the stones that people have had to carry, um, not just for a short time, but for a long time. And one of the things that I feel like is so isolating for people is that you think that you're the only person who has to carry stones like this. You think you're the only person that's had to deal with financial issues, not just for the last couple of months, but for decades. You think you're the only person whose marriage is really, really difficult, and you don't know how to talk about it. You think you're the only person with family dysfunction. 
You think you're the only person dealing with unfulfilled desires that have gone on for decades and decades, and you don't know what to do with them. I mean, the list is on and on and on. And one thing that I hope we do is find camaraderie that all of us, whether we have come out of a season, we're in the season now, or we'll be headed into a season, all of us will have to deal with burdens, heavy stones that we have to carry for long periods of time. And so first and foremost, uh, Paul is normalizing what it means for us to have burdens. Now, this is really important because this, all of us try to find ways to not have burdens in our life. I'm cutting out all the negative negativity in my life in 2023. You cut them off in December and your life has still got a lot of negativity in there. No matter how many people we cut off, no matter how many jobs we change, no matter how many cities we move to, no matter how many roommates we swap out, we will always have issues. And what Christianity tells us is that certainly there's things we can do to improve our life and to reduce some of the negative impacts. What the gospel tells us is that we will have challenges in our life. And the antidote to it is not to pretend or to try to avoid all of them, but to be in a community that helps each other carry these things. And so first it's the reality of our burdens. The second thing I want to point out is the myth of self-sufficiency. The myth of self-sufficiency. We all have burdens, and God does not intend for you to carry them by yourself. The reason your back hurts is because you're carrying something you don't need to be carrying by yourself. Now, I'm speaking to myself right now. I think there's two different reasons why people don't even open up to their burdens for other people. Number one, we don't want to be a burden on other people. And the reality is, you are a burden on other people. Like, that's what Paul is saying. We want to open up to the extent that it's just like, it's it's fine. It's like just a little thing for you to help me consider. Um, Paul is saying, no, I want you to carry one of those burdens. What does that mean? That means this heavy weight that is on my back, I want you to slide it off of your back and I'll help you carry it as well. And so none of us are self-sufficient, although we would like to be. You know, most people's prayer requests and requests of God is that God would help them to become more self-sufficient, that they wouldn't need anybody else. And that's really a lie from the enemy that wants us to believe that we can navigate through life by ourselves, that we can be self-sufficient, not in need of God or not in need of God's people. One of the challenges, the biggest challenge is probably pride. It's, I don't want to be a burden, um or I think I can figure it out on my own. And one of the challenges, and what it robs us of is this. Yes, you are a burden, but the gospel says you're also valuable. You're worth being a burden. Are you a burden? Yes. Are you valuable? Is it worth it? Also, yes. Both of these things are true. And God is inviting us to lay down this ridiculous self-image we have of ourselves, of self-sufficient, and open ourselves up to others to have our stories, to have our lives carried by other people as well. Now, this is not for you just to um, open up to everybody and share your entire story and all your burdens with everyone, but this is to reflect and to think about, um, are you carrying too much by yourself? Now, I have a confession. Every Sunday, Lester gets up and he says, if anybody um, has any prayer requests, come up to the front. We would hate for you to leave without without being prayed for. And there's been a couple Sundays where I felt to myself, I need to go down and get prayed for. Um, not because there's anything salacious happening in my life, there's no scandals brewing, but I was just carrying some burdens. I was carrying some heavy burdens, and it was pride that kept me from coming down to the altar.
So all of us have things inside of us. Some of it's pride, other people it's shame. It's you've done some things that you just don't want nobody knowing about. And it's a burden for you. But here's one of the things that's so fascinating about just like how shame is defeated in our lives. You will never defeat shame by yourself. Like it's, it's an impossibility for you to defeat the shame you're dealing with by yourself. You need to speak it to another person and have them undo that shame in your life. We need to be in small, safe, trusted spaces to be able to come out of shame. And the more we keep ourselves to ourselves, the more we believe this myth of self-sufficiency, the more shame grabs its grip over our lives. We tell ourselves a lie that in just a little bit I'll share with people, but we're just deepening our, deepening our trench of self-sufficiency. So number one, it's the reality of burdens. Number two, it's the myth of self-sufficiency. And number three, it truly is the command to carry one another's burdens. Because Christians all have burdens, and since none of us are sufficient to bear our burdens alone, God has so created this body of Christ to be priests to one another, bearing one another's burdens. Uh, over the years, probably one of the biggest challenges has been, has been that people treat our church as a commodity, not a community. A commodity is something that you buy. It's a shirt. It's a pair of jeans that you like. And when that shirt is no longer in style, you get rid of it. A commodity is something that as long as you have it, as long as it serves you, it's fine. But the day that it ceases to serve you, you stop. Jesus says what is markedly different about the Christian communities that he hopes to create, and I hope and pray that Renaissance is and is becoming more and more every day, is a community, not a commodity. A community where people are willing to be inconvenienced and to carry one another's burdens. This looks a whole lot more like the beloved community that Jesus wants to create among us. And you know what? The fuel for how we get to that, it's not beating yourself up. It's not me beating myself up. It's not me guilting you. It's the gospel that fuels us for this. You know, one of the things I think is the biggest challenge for people is that we're often led by our emotion, not our devotion. We're led by what we want to do, what we feel like doing, not what we are devoted to doing. Generally speaking, there's two groups of people when, you think, when I think about um, this command to bear another burdens. There's one group of people who take this joint like Flojo and run with it, and you're bearing too many people's burdens. As a matter of fact, you probably don't have enough what some therapists would call differentiation. Like you don't know where your story stops, where their story stops and your story begins. There should always be a space between you and the other person. That burden is their burden to carry primarily. You are there to help, to assist, but you need to know the healthy boundary of where you need to stop and where that other person needs to begin. Lord knows we can't change even ourselves, let alone other people. And so for people who are struggling with really letting, um, having this space in between you and other people, please hear me when I'm saying this command to carry one another's burdens is not for you to take the entire rock off of their back. They need to carry some of that burden alongside you as you help them out. But on the other side, there's so many people who you, you have taken self-care to the 7,000th degree. I believe in limits. I believe in limits. We're all limited. I believe in boundaries. I believe in, in time away. I believe in healing and reflection. I believe in all of these things. We preach these things in order to be healthy. However, there's an entire generation of people who are up, coming up 
and we just won't be inconvenienced by anything. So we have DNA groups and growth groups coming up this fall. We want all of you to prayerfully consider what it looks like for you to not just be interested in them, but to commit to them. And here's my hope in my heart for everybody who signs up uh, for DNA groups and our growth groups this fall, is that you would be led by your devotion, not your emotion. For the in-person groups, it's a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night, you had a long day at work, you're tired, uh, you wanna go home, it just started raining, uh, you're just daydreaming about ordering your favorite meal on Seamless and go sitting on the couch. That might serve you the best that night. Seriously, it might be the best thing for you that day. But that is you being a person led by your emotion, what you feel like doing. I guarantee you in the long run, it won't be the best thing for you. Although it might feel good, it is not good. And so to be a community that's um, formed and shaped by the gospel means that we are allowing ourselves to be fueled by our devotion, the things that we are devoted to, the things that we are committed to, the people that we are committed to, irrespective of if we feel like it's actually helping us in that moment. That's something a whole lot more beautiful to belong to. Which would you rather belong to? A community of people that will only do what they feel like doing when they feel like doing it? Or a group of people who are committed to each other through the highs and the lows? Last point. So we've, we've got this, the reality of our burdens, the myth of self-sufficiency, the command to carry one another's burdens. The last one is to live out the law of Christ. To live out the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is very simply, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, the author says it like this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. Lord knows we need this every single day. We need this every single day to, to be loved by people and to love people because God has first loved us. You know, when I think about the, the most meaningful interactions I've had with people over the last nine years here at Renaissance, uh, it hasn't just been the stuff that I've experienced on stage. I've experienced amazing singing and preaching and uh, teaching from different people and kind words. But quite honestly and truly, the people that have impressed me the most, the people that have impacted me the most, are people who have loved others in this community you love me, you love my family, fueled by the gospel that God first loved you. And there was this overflowing of love from God that pours out on other people. You know, when I reflect about the stories of Renaissance over these last nine years, and I think about all that God has done and all that God is doing, it's people who are motivated and shaped by this gratitude of what God has done in their lives, and it pours out on other people. And that is the real thing. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, um, I pray that in all that we get to celebrate and participate in and witness, Lord, I pray that you would make us the real thing. I pray that you would give us deep clarity of who you are and that would lead us to deep devotion to others. Lord, may we reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.